Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is an interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and most leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One. First guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, you better get it. Amazon. Whether you're listening or watching, I thank you very much for your support and interest. You're going to be handsomely rewarded for, for doing that today because my guest is composer, keyboardist, flautist Brian Jackson, best known for his decade of groundbreaking work with the legendary social political composer, poet, and singer Gil Scott Heron during his 1970s peak period. Together, they personified the name and ideals of this program, Truth and Rhythm. Brian's on-point jazz-informed work on piano, Fender Rhodes, and other keyboards set a strong foundation for his partner's heartfelt vocals and hard-hitting, incisive, and sometimes controversial lyrics. The results of this very special pairing, which bridged the musical genres of soul, jazz, and funk, among other influences, produced one of popular music's most important bodies of work, and for me personally, one of the most important and cherished. Um, furthermore, by using a sing-song style to share words and stories that unflinchingly spotlighted the harsh realities of America's inner cities combined with irresistible jazz funk grooves, the innovative duo set the stage for the rap and hip-hop that would follow, often being featured and sampled within that genre. It's no wonder that, aside from some dated references, this amazing music is as timeless, fresh, and relevant today as when it was first created. Besides being important, I meant to also say that the music is very moving. I'll never forget my first exposure when I was around 14 years old to Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. It was on Saturday Night Live in 1975. The show was relatively new and was just making a name for itself. It was an amazing episode. Richard Pryor was a guest host. Pryor introduced the heretofore unknown to me musical act of Gil Scott Heron. They ripped into a funky and blistering rendition of a song called Johannesburg. I had just begun getting really deep into funk, and that performance and song set me afire. I've been hooked ever since. And I couldn't believe at the time that I had not yet heard of Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson because it was that good. Among the pair's other classic tracks were The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, The Bottle, Winter in America, Hello Sunday, Hello Road, Racetrack in France, Angel Dust, Shut Him Down, 1980, and so many others. Although the world lost the genius of Gil Scott Heron with his passing in 2011, and musically long before that, due to the ravages of substance abuse, we're so fortunate to have Brian Jackson alive well and continuing to create beautiful sounds and provide his perspectives. Coming up, we'll find out how Brian began his musical journey. We'll talk about his musical heroes, influences, and other important figures. We'll talk about when he first met Gil and what their formative years were like. We'll dive into some of the classic songs and albums. We'll cover the record label friction and internal tension that led to the duo split. We'll speak about Brian's subsequent production session work with other acts. And we'll talk about his later encounters with Gil and his passing. 
And finally, we'll talk about what Brian is up to today. So with all that, Brian, it is definitely an honor to have you joining the show today. How are you? Thank you, Scott. I'm doing well. Greetings from uh, rainy Brooklyn, New York. Oh, uh, you got some rain today, huh? Yeah. It's okay, though. It's been, been fair to Midland so far, so, you know, I'm not complaining. Excellent. Well, I'm coming, as always, uh, to you from the Charlotte area. So we're uh, East Coast, keeping it real today. That's it. Um, excellent. So are you ready to jump into some questions? Let's do it. All right. So to get rolling, I wanted to know what first attracted you to keyboards and also the flute. Um, it's not you know, a real common uh, pairing of those two instruments. So if you could tell me about your musical youth, the progression and influences leading up to your enrollment, at um, college when you uh, met Gail. We'll talk about that after, but if you could talk about what uh, transpired sort of leading up to that. Well, both the piano and the flute were kind of instruments by default. And uh, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, my parents were both big uh, jazz enthusiasts. And uh, so I used to hear jazz in my home all the time. In fact, some of the things that I remember hearing um, around that time period were, were pieces by Miles Davis and pieces by Clifford Jones and, I mean, sorry, Clifford Brown and, and Max Roach. Uh, so I was already hearing um, a lot of bebop in my house and the drums, you know, in bebop can, can be very explosive sometimes. Um, a lot of drops, a lot of booms and a lot of bams in there. It's kind of like a video game for me um, before we had video games. It was exciting. And it was alive and it was fast and it was just the kind of thing that a, a little boy would, would, would uh, be attracted to if he, if he had a chance to be. And uh, I had every chance in the world to be because, as I said, music was in my house 24-7. So at some point, I decided that I wanted to be one of those people that made those sounds, made those video games. And uh, I think around five years old, my parents had just recently split. And... Uh, I asked my mom if I could uh, have a if I could have a drum set, and I wanted to learn drums. And we lived in a tiny we lived in a small apartment, and she thought about it for a second and vetoed it completely. <laughs> so, you know, based on the on the noise level, being in a in an apartment in Brooklyn wasn't going to cut it. Me learning drums at five years old not going to cut it. So I said, well, the next thing came to my mind was Clifford Brown and trumpet. So I asked, well, what about trumpet? Nope, still too loud. <laughs> so we settled on piano and uh, she made me wait for a while. I had to wait for about two years. Um, I suppose she wanted to see if I was really interested, you know, cause kids at that age, they want to do everything. But, uh, you know, they don't realize, and rightfully so at that, at that point, they don't realize the, the investment of, of time and energy and, and money that it takes to, to do those things. So she let me stew on it for a little while, but I bugged her every, every so often over the, over the next two years until she finally acquiesced and I started taking lessons with her music teacher, uh, the woman who had taught her piano. Um, she wasn't a musician, but she could play. Um, and her, my music teacher was the name, her name was Hepzibah Ross. And uh, she had a master's degree from Spelman College. And she was able, she had taught a lot of kids in the community, a lot of kids. 
and I happen to be one of those. And um, I studied for about uh, about seven years. And uh, at that time, I kind of went on my own. But I always with the intention of, st of playing jazz, and she started me playing um, classical. So that was okay. It was fine. But when I got to be 14, I decided that I still hadn't learned too much about playing jazz. I only knew a few chords that my godmother had taught me. And so I asked her, well, when am I going to start learning jazz? And she said, um, she said, okay, well, you know what? Let me get on that. I, I understand where you're coming from. I, I can't teach you that. So I'll, I'll find somebody. So I let it go for a few months, but I was impatient, you know, and eventually I just went up to her and I said, hey, I thought you were going to find, did you find anybody for me? And she said, yeah, kind of, I did kind of, but there's a problem. And I said, well, what is the problem? And she said, problem is that uh, the guy just passed away. And I said, oh man, well, who was it? And she said, well, it's a guy in the neighborhood. I happened to, I happened to know his wife and, um, you know, we, we had had a conversation about him giving you lessons and then he fell ill and he passed away. I said, so what was his name? She said his name was Bud Powell. Bud Powell. Wow. So I said, okay, well, in that case, I guess there's not much I can do, but I, that was about as far as I could, uh, as I could imagine taking my, my jazz instruction. So I just took it upon myself to learn it myself, teach myself. I had some lessons from Jackie Byard. Um, I had some lessons from, um, um, oh man, Fred Simmons. Um, these were all guys who, who lived in the area, who lived in the New York area and made their time available to teach younger, younger artists. So with their help and, you know, with some study, I got there. And those lessons were though all on keyboard? How did the flute play into that? So the flute, I had always, ever since I started hearing Coltrane and, and Cattlebar Adderley and uh, a couple of couple of artists, you know, a couple of saxophonists, I, I really I really loved um, their sound and I loved their the way they were able to emote through their instrument. And I thought, wow, that would be a great instrument for me to study as well, because. You know, on a piano, you can't really bend notes. You can't really do that much with them. And so I thought this would be a great instrument. I had tried guitar for that, but they hurt my fingers. And so I got a, an alto saxophone from a pawn shop. And uh, the mistake I made, though, was I got a really cheap strap. Trap, the strap was made out of string, basically. And I hung the saxophones with the saxophone suspended around my neck by a string. It eventually severed, severed something called the suprascapular nerve. So I, at some point, I was unable to lift my, um, my left arm above my shoulder line. And when they told me that, that was the problem, I realized that the only thing was that the only thing I could do to help heal it before it was completely damaged was to stop hanging things around, heavy things around my neck. So that was it for the saxophone. But I still had the fingering. And I thought, well, if I ever heal, maybe I can get back to it. So I took up something that didn't require any pressure on my shoulder, which was the flute. And uh, I just kept, you know, I just kept playing it. Was, it was a peaceful instrument. It was a relaxing instrument to play. And so I, you know, at, at some point I just, uh, I, I kept at it. And when we did the, when we did the winter in America, um, 
since it was only Gil and me at first recording all of these uh, all of these songs, it it just felt like we needed another voice, and that voice became the flute. You know, it's funny, um, Brian. When I was in school, in grade school, and going to play an instrument. I was interested in the flute, but they said, well, you know, there's a ton of flutes and also the girls usually play the flutes. So I ended up playing alto sax. So I <laughs> that, went the other, other way a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, so you're a teenager and you're playing keyboards and, and all that. So before you got to the university, um, you know, how much had you played in front of people and that sort of thing? Where were you musically as you went to college? Yeah, um, I had been playing for people because the thing is that one thing that my, my music teacher, Mrs. Ross, um, would do for, uh, for her students every year is she would rent out one of the well-known halls in, in New York. For a while, it was at, uh, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think where it was in Manhattan. Well, it was a big, it was a big hall. I wouldn't, I, it wasn't Carnegie Hall, but it was, uh, it was some, it was somewhere like that in the city. And then after that, um, when that became too expensive, she, she put us in band. We used to start doing our concerts at, at band in the big, you know, in the big one with the, with two pianos, two, two grand Steinway pianos. Um, and we used to put on our recitals there every, every year, once, once every year, the summer. So I had been accustomed a little bit already to performing in front of people. Um, so it wasn't, and it was a great, I'm, I think, you know, in retrospect, I think that was a great thing for her to do because um, I wasn't afraid of big venues. I wasn't afraid of fancy, fancy halls like that. So any place else I performed, I, I, I would go there and I'd say, this is a dump, you know? <laughs> so that was, that, that kind of took away the fear that I had about, about performing in front of people. Um, once I got to college, I was in three bands. Um, one of them played mixers for the student, for the student union every, every Friday night we did the student mixers and played all the top 40 R&B songs and, um, and soul songs. So that also helped me to get, off, to get away from that. And that was, uh, was it Lincoln? I was at Lincoln University. Yeah, yeah, in Pennsylvania, right? So, um, and that's, of course, where you famously met Gil, the historic meeting. Um, I think, uh, as I recall, he kind of came to you and kind of recruited you. How did that happen? So I, well, I used to spend a lot of time in the uh, music rooms, um, the practice rooms at Lincoln University. They had a, a row of them. And... Uh, you know, you could just go in basically in any one of them. Well, the music students could. I wasn't a music student, but I I played one on TV. So <laughs> I used to I used to go into the music rooms and uh, practice for hours and hours and on on end. And one day, um, this uh, young man who was a I think he was a junior at the time came in. He heard what I was doing and he knocked on the door and came in introduced himself to me as Victor Brown. And uh, Victor told me that uh, he was interested in, in performing on a, at a, a talent show that Lincoln University had every year. And that he had two songs in mind 
that he wanted to do, one of which was uh, God Bless the Child. And in, in particular, the version, um, the arrangement by Blood, Sweat and Tears, which I just happened to know. And uh, so he asked me to play it and I played it. And this guy had a, one of the most beautiful voice, beautiful tenor voices I've ever heard. Um, first tenor, I mean, like way, way up there. And um, I thought, well, yeah, sure, I'd love to play for this guy. You know? and he was—he seemed very interested in in the same thing. So uh, I asked him, well, "What about the second song? What about what's the other song?" And he said, "Oh, that's a song by a guy here, like a student here." And um, I said, "Well, I, I, well, you want me to play that one too?" He said, "No, he, he's going to play it." You know. Um, so I said, well, who is he? I, you know, so he, he told me, well, he's in the next practice room over there. You, know? you want to meet him? And I said, yeah, sure, tell him to come on over. So he comes over and um, it just so happens to be Gil. And um, he sits down at the piano and he plays this song that he had written for Victor called, uh, Where Can a Man Find Peace? And um, I was totally taken aback by the maturity of the of the lyrics and um i just it, it said something to me the, the lyrics spoke to me and they they spoke to me and they made me they reminded me of of things that i had i had heard or read by langston hughes and uh on about and, and uh county cullen you know some of the some of the great african-american uh literary figures that I had been, I had been reading, um, Amiri Baraka, who was then Leroy Jones. So <clears throat> I had been working on a song before they came over, and it was ju it just so happened to be that uh, I I thought to myself, wow, this would be great if I could get some lyrics to this song. So I asked, I told Gil, I said, hey, you you have any more lyrics? And he said, yeah, you know, he pulls out this book he has full of lyrics, and I said, well. Here, I have this song I want you to listen to. What do you think about it? So I played it for him. And the first thing he asked me was something that he always ended up asking me uh, when we wrote songs together. And I would present a song to him. He said, what were you thinking? What was the idea? What were you feeling when you, when you write that song, when you wrote that song, or when you play it? And so in this particular case, I told him that, well, this song is kind of like a, a tribute. It's kind of a tribute to the, the ancestors, a tribute to people who have spent their lives or dedicated or given their lives to, in the pursuit of justice, um, in the pursuit of, um, of, of equal rights. Um, and so I, you know, I, I just said, it's kind of like a, like I raised my glass to them, you know? And he said, okay, play it again. So he plays again, he takes out a pen, piece of uh, his, um, a paper in his um, in his notebook, and he starts writing. So I finish, and he asked me to write to play it again. And he writes some more stuff. And he scratches out a couple of things, writes a couple more lines. At the end of it, that song was called "A Toast to the People," and it was a song that we put on our album, "First Minute of a New Day." And that was our first song. <laughs> wow! And it was it was not the last, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. How, so first off, what were you majoring in, Brian? 
I think I was majoring in, in disagreeing with all of my professors, you know, because uh, <laughs> I had gone to Lincoln because I thought there might be a more Afrocentric agenda, which I never found. And I, I protested, I think, a bit too often. And uh, so I, I wasn't. I was more more or less a persona non grata at the uh, at the at the university at that time, but I still I stayed around anyway. They just didn't know I was there because <laughs> I couldn't really go back to my I couldn't really go back home, <laughs> you know. So I kind of hung around there for for a while, and um, Gil had checked himself out of Lincoln so that he could write uh, he, so he could finish his first novel, The Vulture. So. We just basically kind of gravitated toward the Lincoln University area until we could figure out where to go next. And how would you, how would you describe uh, your, your, you know, your sort of temperament and, and where you were um, spiritually, mentally at that point as contrasted with, you know, Gail, what he was like at that time? I think spiritually um, and mentally, I think we were kind of... Um, pretty much on the same page. Um, the way it manifested itself was was quite different. I was um, I was very shy and I was um, kind of reserved and, and soft-spoken and, uh, you know, kind of like the opposite. <laughs> My wife would tell you kind of the opposite of how I am now. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, uh, I, I didn't, you know, I was somebody who didn't want to be out front. So Gil was like kind of the perfect partner for me because um, he was just, he was like the opposite of all of those things. Um, he was brash. He was um, outspoken, extremely outspoken. Um, and I uh, had no problem being out front. I had no problem um, representing whatever it was that we, we were putting forward. He had no problem being the face of that or the representative, the representative of that, which pleased me quite a bit because then all I had to do was just um do what I do, which is which is write and arrange and produce, you know. So it worked out it worked out very well. But as far as, as um ideologically, yeah, we were both we were both in the same place. We were both trying to uh, to to come to grips with our um existence as young black men in in America in the seventies, uh in the time of protest and a time when uh, being snatched away from uh, from home to to fight a war uh, overseas um, uh, for God only knows why you know and um, we we were both in in that age group we were only in that age we were both in that age group and we both felt that uh, there were a lot of dangers a lot of perils to to living in America while black and uh, you know we we felt that. If we were going to write songs, that would be a good thing to write about because there had been enough, already enough songs about about partying and, and dancing and you know and, and um, you know baby let me get let me get in your you know whatever and this it was already enough of that so we felt like even though it's obviously it's a noble those are all noble subjects we just felt as though we you know we could probably add another voice to the um, to the experience. So were you sort of fast friends, or was it you know more of the musical and you know um, connection with what was going on at that time? Uh, what was the relationship like beyond that? 
No, like we were completely buddies, you know, we hung out all the time and, you know, we, we, I think that we probably wouldn't have been able to write the kind of thing we, we wrote to, if we, if we hadn't, um, if we hadn't been friends. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time going over, watching ads on, watching um, how Madison Avenue spins, uh, spins their, their web. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. We spent a lot of time talking about current events and, and things that were happening and, and the implications of them. And, uh, you know, through these, these conversations and, and, and through our, our time hanging out together as, as brothers, um, I think that's kind of what, what made the music strong. And when we, when we formed a band, we, we formed a band that required kind of that same type of relationship with all of the other band members. So Brian, you connect with Gil and you start making great music. Talk to me about, um, you know, what those first few years of collaboration were like, you know, when you went in for the first album or two, I know you played with some great legends like Ron Carter and Hubert Laws. Uh, you had Bob Field producing. So this is in the 71 to 72 time frame. Kind of step us through that period, if you would. Okay. The first, um, the first album was called Small Talk at 125th and Lennox, and it was primarily an album of, um, of poetry um, with uh, African percussion underneath as a, as a background, as a backdrop. Um, originally, Bob Thiel had approached Gil when he wrote Small Talk at 125th and Lennox, the, the poetry book. Um, Bob Thiel, who had produced um, a great number, great number of albums on uh, on Impulse. Some of the greatest, uh, some of the greatest works by John Coltrane and Archie Shepp and uh, many of the other Impulse artists <clears throat> um, had decided to form his own his own label, Flying Dutchman Records, um, on which he would record and release many spoken word pieces, pieces by uh, journalists uh, um, such as Pete Hamill. Um, Carl Rowan, I think, had a piece. Um, there were, there were several. Um, there were several spoken word pieces that were extremely um, important. There were important works, um, and this seemed to be the direction that he was going in. Probably one because he didn't have a tremendous budgets, uh, and probably two because it's, it's something that he that he felt a, a need to do. Um, so when he approached Gil about that, it, it seemed, you know, it, it seemed logical. Um, he was a young black poet who, uh, who a lot of people hadn't been exposed to yet, and might not be, or not, might not have been, had not uh, his uh, his work been been recorded. So here he is, and uh, he gets gets Gil to uh, to record this album, but. One of the things that Gil had asked him before he signed the contract was if he would be able to, to do music. Um, because he, he told him, I'm like a songwriter now, you know, I'm a songwriter and, uh, you know, I, I write songs with this guy named Brian and, uh, you know, we have a lot of material and, and I, you know, I, I like that. I have these poems and everything. It's great. We did them. Now I like to do what we, what I'm doing now. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> And Bob said, well, tell you what, let's do this poetry album and see how it does. And if it does, okay, then we'll, we'll talk about it. Fair enough. Um, 
after the album was released a few months after that, Bob calls up Gil and he says, um, so let me hear these songs you got. So Gil and I bust on down to uh, Bob Thiel's studio and we start banging out some of these songs on his, uh, on his piano. Bob is sitting in the, in the corner at his desk, smoking his pipe. And uh, at the end, we played like three or four songs for him. He said, okay, so who do you want on, uh, who do you want on the album? So I don't know, I riffed off like every name I could possibly think of, you know, all the people that I've been listening to, you know, LB Jones, Tony Williams, Wayne Shorter, Archie Shep, you know, whoever, you know, I was just riffing off names. So he took them all down very seriously. And um, he said, okay, well, I'll see what I can do. So he calls us back about a week later and he says, um, okay, so I didn't get so-and-so, but I got Bernard Purdy. I didn't get so-and-so, but I got Hubert Laws. And I got Ron Carter. And I thought to myself, okay, now I'm really scared. <laughs> this guy actually did that. You know, I was kind of, I was kind of bluffing, you know, I didn't, I didn't think he was going to come up with any of those guys, but he came up with them. And so the next thing to do was to actually go in the studio with him. And, um, that was kind of scary. You said that, um, I played with them, but in, in reality, at first they kind of played with me, you know, it was like, I had this kind of trial by fire because, uh, at some point, they decided to have a little fun with me and question me on one of the on one of the chords and one of the songs. And uh, you know, Ron starts out and he goes, "Hey, um, Brian, let me ask you something. That's um, you see, I see you have a C eleven there, but is it a, is it like a C eleven sus or is it like a C eleven? And I said, no, it's it's a C eleven sus. You know, so he goes through that. He said, well, then I could play a C seven. I mean, you know, maybe is it a C seven or a C or a C11. And so I said, no, it's a C, it's a, it's a C11, you know, sus. And he, he did that a couple more times. And I said, oh my God. Um, now I'm thinking to myself, oh, maybe I made a mistake. So I told him, well, do you, you think it should be a C? And he goes, no, no, man, I'm just kidding. You know, <laughs> you know it's, if you want to see 11, it's, it's fine. You know, I'll, I'll play it. And then he kind of looks around at, at Purdy and, and Hubert Laws and they kind of like, yeah, we razzed him. We got him good. So <laughs> that was my trial by fire. But after that, I mean, after they realized that I knew what I was talking about, they just kind of let me, they, they, they kind of just let me interpret my music the way, the way I wanted to. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We had, I had a lot of fun. It was scary as hell, but at the same time, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was an honor. And I learned so much from those guys just from playing with them for a few hours. What, what was the vibe like in the studio? Was it real no-nonsense, or was it loose and relaxed, or what was that like? I think it was both, you know, in a way, because, uh, you know, everybody was relaxed, except me. <laughs> but um, even I uh, relaxed after a while, because I, I was listening to how these guys were interpreting that music, and it just took my mind in places that I, I never even thought that, that I could go. It was just the greatest, it was the greatest feeling in the world. And then hearing it back and realizing that I had been a part of that, even now when I listen to it, I, I still have that same feeling. 
So we're talking about the uh, Pieces of a Man and Free Will albums, right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Pieces of a Man had the uh, remake with the music behind it of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Right. And uh, another key track was uh, Home is Where the Hatred Is. Yes. Yeah. Um, great stuff. So when these records came out, you know, how much of a following were you guys developing at that point? You know, what was the audience like? I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I guess our friends liked it. <laughs> my mother, my mom liked it. You know, um, <clears throat> I don't know if we had much of a following at that point. Um, later on, I think maybe we, when we got a little bit more exposure, we realized that uh, people were were paying attention but during those during those days i i think um we felt lucky we felt we felt honored to and fortunate to be able to um to have been exposed to a wider audience musically and a wider a wider circle of, of artists and musicians like um, gato barbieri and uh, who was also on the label we we got a chance to play later on with them with them um, Stanley Clark and, and Pablo Landrum and uh, a lot of great, you know, great, great artists that, that we had come to respect over the years. And uh, if it hadn't been probably, if it hadn't been for our association with Bob, we probably wouldn't have, you know, have met them at that time anyway. So a significant change came around 73. You guys switched labels and you worked on what would become Winter in America. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, quite a uh, leap forward or, you know, significant development and the production and the level of musicality and all that. So could you speak about that experience some, Brian? So after the contract was over with, uh, with Theo, we opted not to, to go back with him because of the fact that the one, the one fact that, that was the deciding issue was that was publishing. Um, <clears throat> Bob wanted to retain um, the publishing. And a lot of the older musicians that we had come in contact with were always telling us, make sure, if anything, that you hold on to your publishing or as much of your publishing as you possibly can. And the reason for this is that albums come and go. Album may sell for a little while and then it might get pulled off the shelf or you might never hear it again, hear of it again or whatever. But in performing rights, the same thing. You know, you may get some airplay and you may get paid for that at some point. Um, so, but the one thing that always, that you will always make money off of actually is your publishing. And, you know, when, when, a, when a song gets played on the air, um, you're going to get some money as a writer, but you're going to get twice as much if you're also that publisher. And um, if an album sells, no matter where it sells or when it sells, you're going to get money as a, as a publisher. Um, whereas as an artist, you know, you, you get some money that you're going to eventually have to pay back and you probably never will be able to recoup it all. Um, and so you're, the source of income that you will still be able to hold on to even far into the future, even during your, your later years, our publishing. We decided we're going to keep our publishing. And uh, that was a problem for Bob. 
understandably, um, he was running a small label and uh, he didn't, you know, this was one of the ways that he could possibly make some, you know, some, some extra cash. So we parted ways and decided we had seen Bob enough in the studio smoking his pipe and telling the engineer, turn this up or turn that down. So we thought, okay, that's publishing. I mean, that's producing, so let's give it a shot. So we found ourselves a studio in, in Washington, D.C., Silver Spring, Maryland, actually, um, run by um, a great engineer by the name of Jose Williams. And um, we decided to try to play pub, uh, play producer. And uh, it was just luck on our part. It was really fortunate on our part that Jose understood what we were trying to do and was a hell of a producer himself. Um, and we learned a lot from, from working with him. He was, he was very generous with his knowledge and experience. And if it hadn't been for him, I'm probably we wouldn't have been able to have created such a, such a great album. That, that album, I mean, the title track was so mesmerizing and, uh, uh, you know, just really moving. Was, was that the record that uh, Malcolm Cecil got involved or did that come later? That came a little bit later. Winter in America was, was a, more or less done just by Gil and, and me. Um, we had $4,000 to produce this album. And uh, we, we tried it a couple of different ways and, uh, <laughs> and we ended up um, using the tracks that we had and we, a, couple of, a couple of the songs seemed kind of bare. And so we brought our buddies in from Lincoln University, Bob Adams and uh, Danny. Uh, Danny Bowens on bass, and um, Bob was on drums, and we sweetened up some of the tracks with their with with their instruments. But aside from that, it was just the, the four of us uh, and a couple of other friends, like say Tony Green, who happened to be around, hanging out, giving us our opinion. A lot of our friends in the area, Gary and uh, Henry, would come by and, and give us, you know, give us. It was uh, give us pointers and give us their opinions and, and their impressions of what we were doing. So, yeah, I mean, it was a great, you know, it was a great community project, a great, uh, a great first project and something that we, it looks like we did ourselves, but we certainly, we certainly had a lot of, a lot of help doing it. That record also had the bottle on it, which is one of the better known songs. Um, you know, how did that sort of uh, start to get exposure and, you know, how did the record elevate you exposure-wise overall? Yeah, it's weird because um, we, apparently Frankie Crocker um, uh, from New York, one of, the, one of the famous DJs out of, out of New York, um, had decided that he liked this, that he liked this song and uh, started pumping it like crazy on WLIB, I think at the time it was WLIB before it was WBLS. Um, it was the R&B and soul station of, of note in New York. And uh, it just started pumping this thing. So much so that like one day my grandmother was walking down the street and she heard this, this song in one of the record stores. And it had moved her to go into the store to tell, to tell them that that was her grandson on flute. <laughs> you know, but I mean, that was the ultimate at that point. Um, so you can come by, you can come by, sorry. Um, so, um, 
What's up? What's up? What's going on? It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, you want to get something? You can get something. It's cool. My daughters. Um, it just took off. I mean, apparently there were people all over the um, all over the country now who wanted to get their hands on this, particularly distributors and, and retailers, but they weren't able to because of the small label that we were on, uh, which was Strata East. It was basically a small jazz label that was never intended really to to push out a lot as as many units as was, as were being demanded. So at some point. We had boxes of, of records in, in our kitchen, right underneath the, um, the wall phone. And so when we would get an order, we would just ship it out ourselves. You know, um, the, the demand was, was, was that huge. And I think from that time on, uh, I believe that's when we started to get some recognition um, from some industry people who seemed to, uh, and, and so we, what happened was that uh, we ended up uh, being approached by, by, or Gil ended up being approached by Clive Davis, who was himself also starting a new label called Arista Records. And, and uh, I think really impressed by, by the numbers on, uh, on, on the bottle, it thought, well, damn, you know, if I can get another bottle out of this guy, you know, I, I got it made. Because um, I don't know, a lot of people don't know this, but the bottle, had actually been covered by a band called uh, Brother to Brother, which was the, out of the Sugar Hill Gang community in uh, in Jersey. They completely redid the song, um, note for note, exactly the way it had been done, and re-released it under all um, a label called All Platinum Records, and the, the, under the name of the band uh, Brother to Brother, and they were able to sell one million. Of those, uh, of those 45s, you know? So armed with that information, I think Clyde was more than interested in seeing what he could do. So did you guys get anything from that other act doing that song? Not that I know of. Um, I think we would have probably taken our lives in our hands if we had tried to recover any of it. So, uh, you know, that, that kind of, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's something. I mean, you benefited from it, I guess, in the long run, but in the short term, that must have been uh, something I would think you know that you guys uh, were probably upset about that. Yeah, we were a little, we were a little miffed. But <laughs> 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 I met, interestingly enough, I, I met the guys, the musicians, some most of the musicians who had played on that that um, that track, and I've been friends with them for forever. I mean, they were kids. At the time, they were working for Sugar Hill, Joe Robinson, Joe and Sylvia Robinson, you know, the pillow talk lady. And, uh, you know, they um, they did what they were required to do, and they, they played the music. They didn't know. I mean, you know, they, they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, you know, was, so I, I had met one of the guys, the bass player. And uh, we had just had a conversation, you know, and he said, you, he said to me one day, you know that song, Brother to Brother, The Bottle? You know, I said, yeah, yeah, I know. He said, well, I played on that. You know, he's, and I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, he said, yeah, man, I, I just really, I wanted to apologize, you know, that I never really 
I never really knew what I was, what that was all about, you know. He says, but now that I, I understand, he says, I, I really feel bad about it, you know. And then the other, the drummer that I had been, we had been just jamming, we had been working on some stuff, and he came up to me and he said, yeah, man, I, I played, I played drums on that too. <laughs> so it was all good, you know. It's all good. I mean, the things we do as uh, as youngsters under the um, direction of uh, folks, sometimes it's not not what we would be doing ourselves. <laughs>